Welcome to the Land Use Podcast, brought to you by the Alberta Land Institute. This is Episode 2, How to Grow and Protect Agricultural Land in Alberta. Your hosts this week are me, Evan Menzies, and our guest, Dr. Brent Swallow. Brent is a professor at the University of Alberta as a member of the Faculty of Agricultural, Life, and Environmental Sciences. He also was a co-PI on a recently released report through the Alberta Land Institute, which investigated the economic impact of agricultural land fragmentation and conversion across Alberta. Welcome to the podcast, Brent. I'm happy to be here, Evan. I'm, uh, I'm wondering if we could start with you giving us a, a little bit of a background about what first got you interested in this topic and the, the economics of land use and, and how Albertans in general manage agricultural land here in Alberta. I'm uh, originally from a farm in Saskatchewan, so I'm interested in agriculture and studied agriculture economics. And um, before coming here in 2009 to Alberta, I was in Kenya, uh, and we uh, were working on the challenges of uh, the water quality and quantity uh, available to the residents of the city of Nairobi and how directly that was related to um, land use uh, and agriculture in the headwaters area. So I'm very interested in those links between what farmers do and uh, what, uh, who, who is affected by those decisions. Um, when I came here in 2009, it was a, you know, an interesting time because uh, the Alberta government had just passed the Alberta Land Stewardship Act, so um, kind of launching uh, planning processes at the regional level. So I became very interested in, you know, research that could be, you know, use some of my skills, but also resonate with people here in Alberta. Uh, on that topic, I'm wondering if you could give a, a quick summary of of the Alberta Land Stewardship Act and the type of impacts that piece of legislation has when it comes to uh, land use planning and, and how it might touch on agricultural land. Yeah, so the this Land Stewardship Act um, uh, f- focuses on the possibility for planning of land use at regional levels as defined by major watersheds of the provinces. Um, it had It identified a very quick process for coming up with regional land use plans, that the process has been much slower, but perhaps more uh, care given to the way it's, it's developed. Uh, so, so far we have um, a past plans for the South Saskatchewan River Basin and the uh, Athabasca. Um, the, the challenge is that it, uh, while it clarifies plans for what ought to be done at the regional level, we don't have a regional form of government here. So, uh, we, we really have devolved a lot of responsibilities uh, to municipalities. So that's the next challenge then, is how municipalities can respond to sort of overall plans which are set out at the watershed level. Okay, so um, uh, also was passed in 2009. Um, this project started, I think, around 2014, that's right? So what... Um, from the time ELSA was passed, can you talk a little bit about uh, the development of this project and uh, a little bit more about uh, how it got started and how it got underway? Yeah, so I think that, you know, that, that same process that led to ELSA also, you know, reflects greater concern about a broader, from a broader public and, and even the formation of the Alberta Land Institute. And so we, the Alberta Land Institute, identified the economics of conversion and, and fragmentation of agricultural land to be one of their priorities and 
we there was a competitive process in the university and uh, uh, a team of us from uh, resource economics and environmental sociology and earth and atmospheric sciences came together then to work with uh, professors and uh, graduate students on a kind of suite of related projects that would look at you know what's going on with land use what's the what are the patterns what's the history uh, what has had a, what have been the drivers of land use change and then what are some of the consequences of that so uh, on that note too then can you can you give us a bit of an idea of um, how we define agricultural land here in Alberta uh, what the, what the state of it is um, and and how it looks across the province as far as regions goes sort of what what, what are the t- types of different agriculture that the different um, different regions of the province I guess specialize in right yeah we sort of in a rough and ready way of thinking about about land in Alberta is between the green zone which is primarily publicly crown crown land which is publicly managed by the province um, uh, and uh, you know often forest is uh, one of the land uses there and the white zone which is the agricultural zone which is where most of the land is privately owned with that white zone stretching from the peace peace area in um, northwest part of the province you know down to the uh, to the southern parts of the provinces in in much of the southern part of the province as you know um, uh, agriculture is somewhat limited by rainfall so irrigation plays a big role um, in those areas and in the center part of the province we have you know more plentiful rainfall uh, and also better quality soils so you have uh, while we have you know large production out of the irrigated areas um, those are limited in extent and uh, you know the main uh, areas agricultural area other than irrigation area kind of stretches um, from up northward from from there to Edmonton and then and then the patch in the peace area uh, we distinguish land uh, by its land use suitability uh, and sort of the number of constraints on um, agriculture that the land imposes and the weather imposes and uh, two of the the best qualities of land um, then are it tend to be located in the areas between Edmonton and Calgary in the corridor area uh, and then around Edmonton. So uh, on that note too then uh, a lot of a lot of what the report talks about is is that conversion fragmentation of of land in in that QE2 corridor and around Edmonton. Um, I wonder if you could kind of sort of break down the numbers of, of what that what what that's looking like as far as uh, agricultural agricultural land uh, either being lost or converted uh, in development. Yeah. So we we took a look at land use change for the at the province level uh, in uh, the corridor areas you said from Edmonton to Calgary along the Queen Elizabeth II Highway um, and then and then in the capital region in more detail around Edmonton and uh, you know we find that uh, that 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 where that is the same area that we have the highest uh, density of population in. Alberta, we have the greatest land use change in Alberta, and we have the greatest percentages of um, the highest uh, quality agricultural area. So we've got a coincidence of 
uh, of factors in that corridor area. Um, we uh, note pretty high change. So between 2000 and 2012, um, our numbers uh, are suggesting that, uh, that there was a net change of about 625 square kilometers of land from agricultural uses into what we call developed uses, which are either residential or uh, industrial. Um, and that about uh, half of that or so was on the best quality land, and half or so was on lower, somewhat lower quality of land. So uh, one of the things when it comes to this discussion that I think is interesting is there are, there are obviously a lot of people uh, in and around Alberta uh, who are very invested in, in the state of agricultural land. But I, I'm wondering if you could kind of break down for, say, the, uh, the average folk, person living in the city who, who hasn't spent much time um, dwelling on where, where the food comes from, uh, dwelling on, on the importance of agricultural land, about why, why we should be concerned about the fragmentation and conversion of, of this high-quality soil around Alberta. I mean, uh, for a lot of folks, they, they just see the food pop up in the grocery store and uh, th that takes care of their needs. So I'm wondering if you could sort of break down ab about I mean, the economic impact and sort of uh, maybe maybe cultural impact's not the right word, but um, the types of, th the impact of losing that, that agricultural land, that, that rural aesthetic maybe too, and, and, and some of that, that, that history of, of how that land is traditionally operated. Yeah, there's, you know, it's, it's the, the effects seem to ripple out, and the kind of more we look at them, the more we see this kind of rippling of effects. So uh, we, uh, when land it changes use from agriculture to developed or industrial, it changes forever. And so we've got a basically an irreversible type of change. So whenever we're think, contemplating those changes, you know, keep, it's important to keep in mind that those are, are forever type changes. Um, the, the, so, so that's, that's one thing, sort of the irreversibility of those decisions. The other, th what we see, in, and you mentioned for the first time, fragmentation. And so there's, a, there's these two processes that we studied. One is, you know, change of land use from agriculture to non, to developed uses. Another one, and that's, you know, so that's primarily kind of a push from the cities and a greater footprint of the cities into the countryside. The other thing happening also in the countryside is the development of rural residential or, or acreages as um, preferred places to live. Right. Uh, so people who want to live out in the countryside and who are given the, um, uh, they're allowed to do that by the um, municipal um, governments who, uh, who, who allow redesignation of land into residential uh, are part of sort of a, a, an overall fragmentation of our landscape. And we're, our landscape is fragmenting for other reasons, including um, you know, utility corridors and, and other things, but it's certainly fragmenting in these, in these desirable areas, especially um, that, that area in the corridor, um, due to sort of a, this mushrooming of, of rural residential. And what one of the things we found is rural residential and that fragmentation not only is it a concern in its own right, but it's also a, a concern because it seems to be a precursor for um, conversion of land into developed uses. So these two processes, the ever 
expanding footprint of the cities and then the fragmentation due to development of rural residential cause uh, a sort of a, a, a distinct, distinct change in the, sort of the property markets. And so we get uh, land markets which are driven more and more by, uh, by the prospect of changing land use, either around the cities, uh, that conversion, or in the countryside, the fragmentation. Um, and uh, so less and less of land value is actually made up by its agricultural potential. Right. So that, that causes you know, a few, few changes, and, and one of them is we run the risk of ever uh, increasing distinction between who owns the land and what they own it for and who is actually farming the land. And that's, I think, something that we would, we're concerned about. We, we know that people are also, we're also concerned about both the uh, production of around the cities, uh, that, that land, uh, some of that land is used for things like market gardens and um, vegetable, uh, irrigated vegetables and vegetable production into the farmers markets. Um, and in the, the wider context, uh, the uh, the, the overall health of the agricultural sector. We also, that's the economic story that on the, we also know that people desire um, a landscape uh, which is, uh, which has open space. And so when we have conversion fragmentation, we lose some of that open space. Um, and we also lose some of the environmental services that uh, that open space provides. And we, we certainly are, uh, I think many people are aware of the importance of um, uh, rolling lands uh, that has uh, undulation and, uh, uh, and changes in topography to be important for uh, things like water quantity and water quality. Um, so we're seeing people express uh, concern about uh, those environmental services which are also lost as a result of conversion. So. Uh that kind of gives us a, a good groundwork here to, to jump into public policy and the, the type of options that um, uh, different levels of government might have as far as addressing uh, the problems of, of fragmentation and conversion and, and, and everything and, and the problems that come with that. So I'm wondering if you could kind of give us a, uh, a bit of, uh, we've talked about ELSA, but um, maybe give us a bit of a, uh, a framework of, of where we're at as far as the legislative tools that both municipal governments and the provincial government have to, to address this issue. Yeah, the, uh, the Alberta Land Stewardship Act also identified uh, a couple uh, tools, which are a few which are sort of about zoning for environmental purposes. Um, and, uh, and environmental easements, which are more market-based instruments to um, help uh, municipalities that would so designate certain areas. Those have not been very popular or widely used. Um, they are expensive to put into place, um, relatively expensive to maintain. They would require uh, some type of compensation for landowners and you know, to figure out the base for compensation is a big challenge. Um, so, and that's sort of where, as far as uh, the um, ALSA tools go, we think that the, really the, 
the tools which are currently available uh, outside of ALSA, which are just part of the, um, the, the policy choices and the policy levers that municipal governments have, that those are really actually more important. And so the biggest decision that a municipality can make, I think, to conserving farmland is to not allow its conversion, not as, not not allow its conversion, or not, not allow its its uh, the hiving off of small plots uh, for rural residential. So that's a that's a decision that's clearly already available to rural municipalities, uh, and some one of the key tools available to urban municipalities is actually um, the density requirements that they impose on developers. So we think that. The development process has sort of let developers off the hook a bit, uh, both in terms of the costs that they've been bearing, um, as well as uh, allowing kind of a low density housing approach to proceed. So I think that municipalities are starting to recognize that, and we're seeing some, you know, some promising signs. Now, one of the, um one of the things at least I've heard about, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, for some of the, for some rural municipalities and, and counties, it, one of the challenges that, be, that arises from a public policy perspective is that um, if, if one municipality or county basically says, no, we're not going to pursue this land for, for development, uh, a competing municipality close by will say, okay, great, um, we, we will Try, we're going to essentially compete for for the same land area and we'll, we'll let developers come in so the one they're basically competing I guess in one sense for development dollars and the and, and the revenues that would come come with it so I'm wondering and, and obviously and that, that's kind of a, a hindrance to cooperation when it comes to the big picture um, I'm wondering if you can just maybe touch on that and and wonder and, and maybe comment if, if there are any uh, legislative tools or, or other initiatives that, that can be used to sort of limit that from happening. Yeah, good good point. So we've um, been, for the last two years or so, uh, been interviewing um, policy folks involved in policy processes, both the planners and councillors and Reeves and mayors about, you know, the challenges that they face. And uh, it seems to be lots of anecdotal evidence of, you know, particular cases where uh, municipalities are essentially sitting next to that, that within the municipality there are tensions between the development and conservation and then and then between neighboring municipalities and so if there's a debate of whether you should uh, you know municipalities should put in place kind of more rigorous controls on land use and you say well why should we when the neighbors are likely to, to, to do the opposite uh, the neighbors are more likely to be pro-development. The neighbors are more likely to get that tax revenue, and we're going to have to bear the, the costs. Um, you know, then you've got a, a, a recipe for kind of a kind of a race to the bottom, right? Uh, for each municipality to kind of lower its standards relative to each other. Um, avoiding a race to the bottom is, and, and uh, our research shows that. That anecdotal evidence, actually, uh, we can actually see evidence of it. So we certainly see that from our analysis of land use changes that uh, what happens in one municipality in terms of the pace of land use change spills over 
to its neighbors. There's a clear spillover effect of that um, of, of land use change. So the answer, you know, pretty both from the research and from the discussions, is to have greater regional collaboration uh, in plans and the policies that you need to put in place and the regulations you would need to put in place to kind of implement your, your policies. And yeah, the uh, Municipal Government Act of 2016, that the, some of the changes that that uh, required, they required, requires municipalities to, ha to do land use plans which, take, uh, which uh, conserve prime farmland and it requires them to collaborate between with their neighboring municipalities. So those two things together are two of the right instruments we, we feel for uh, avoiding some of that, um, that, that's that kind of race for the tax dollar that you're indicating. Uh, now, one other question I had uh, related to public policy is, um, uh, Alberta is obviously not the only jurisdiction who sort of struggles with uh, how to how to handle uh, how we designate agricultural land and, and and how we handle that tension between development and growth and and preserving land. Uh, are there any examples from other jurisdictions that that you think uh, might be uh, interesting or worth considering that that you've come by? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a good point. So we've been you know looking at experiences of different U.S. states and different U.S. cities, uh, as well as what's going on in Canada. Uh, you know the the big experiments in farmland conservation, the big tests of that are in the lower mainland in British Columbia and, and the island, uh, as well as around um, the horseshoe around Toronto. So those are provincial level um, uh, policy initiatives where really they were put in place quite quickly, quite clearly, uh, and you know really the consequent, the so who bore the cost of that conservation was really existing landowners. Right? So existing landowners may have had a, sen you know, a sense of what, um, what their land is worth uh, when it's developed, and then you make a change, say essentially stop development, uh, existing landowners are sort of left holding the bag. So that, that teaches us in a way, and then if you look at conservation easements, as a widely used tool in the United States, um, you know, so whoever buys the conservation easement is bearing the cost. We've got other things where, like transferable development credits, which are designed so that the new developers would bear the cost. So I guess that's the what we see. The big difference between these instruments is who bears the cost. Right. And uh, you know, I, I, uh, we, you know, probably aren't. Uh, probably need some type of hybrid model here because I don't think that we're ready for, politically ready for um, a, a movement that would be seen as clearly anti-rural anti uh, to have uh, anti-property rights um, to have um, current landowners bear all the cost. So how, for me, I think the biggest uh, opportunity in Alberta is to kind of take the heat out of the land market. If we could take the heat out uh, by reducing the prospect of a sprawling and fragmented approach to development, uh, 
and more kind of more vertical development and more dense development to take the heat off, to take some of the speculation value out. I think that would be one big step forward for Alberta. Great. Uh, now, one of the other parts of the report uh, that you guys did was you you did a, a survey of of residents in, in the Edmonton and Edmonton surrounding area regarding uh, their their perception and, and, and values of agricultural land and and if they would uh, um, if they would make a, a contribution or to to preserving agricultural land, uh, I'm wondering if you can sort of give us a rundown uh, of of those survey results and and what you think they mean as far as Alberta's Albertans' attitudes towards agricultural land and and possible uh, development of further public policy on it. Yeah, that was one of the first things that we wanted to do with the, this this study we started back in 2014 because uh, was to really assess sort of for the for for residents, right? For people who are paying taxes, people who live in uh, particular communities, how do they feel about conversion and fragmentation of ag land, and how 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 big a concern is it? Uh, because it, it existed in the in also was it really a thing? In a sense, for for a broader group of people, uh, we're, we interviewed 320 people uh, who reside in the capital regions. So that's Edmonton plus the surrounding um, urban and rural municipalities, uh, and uh, asked them about whether they thought the pace of of conversion uh, of of development was too high or too low. Um, how they what they thought. Uh, agricultural land uh, did for them, uh, what were the services that they thought agricultural land provided, would they be willing to pay for uh, kind of scenarios where money would be used to, um, to help conserve land. And we found uh, that people were most concerned about land that were used for vegetable production, producing food for the local market primarily, uh, and then the air pollution and water pollution mitigation values of land, and, and less so uh, the use of land for producing food for the global market, so the, um, for, say, wheat and canola production. Um, they, were, uh, they, they were most interested in conserving land uh, that uh, was uh, rolling grassland, uh, which is now used primarily for cattle grazing, um, and somewhat and vegetable production land, and then somewhat less concern about produce, saving land as primarily used for crop production and hay land. Um, we uh, found that 80% of people were willing to pay something, so we started at $20 as kind of our bottom, uh, as a one-time increase in their taxes. Um, and then about 30% of people were willing to pay $300 as a one-time contribution. So we do see, you know, uh, you know the the average person, you know, somewhat concerned. And when we had focus groups with the public, we found that they're quite educated and knowledgeable and quite observant of the changes uh, and sort of the the sprawl of the city. Um, and we found, uh, you know, twenty percent of people who are sort of hardcore developers and say that's a good sign, right? Development is almost by definition good uh, because it means more jobs and more tax revenue and more services as a result of that. Uh, um, the majority of people are you know, at 80% saying it's a, it's a problem, it's a challenge we need to take account of. 
and then maybe another 20% of, or 30% of people who are pretty hardcore, you know, need to develop, need to conserve uh, um, part of the population. Right. So, um, I, from, from those from those results, were, what surprised you the most, or were were there any of those findings that surprised you the most, or or did they kind of confirm what what you what your perceptions were beforehand about what the general public thought on the issues? Yeah, I think I I have a farm background, so I'm I like many of the farmers I've I've chatted to uh, have this. Uh, kind of affinity to wide open fields, right? And so, and that those large areas of, of, of wheat and canola land, um, prime agricultural land, that was somewhat less of a concern, uh, a sort of priority for conservation for the, these urban residents uh, than uh, you know, vegetable land and the, and, the, and the rolling grassland. And I think it matches with their responses to the questions about why do you want to conserve land? because producing food for the local market and because of its environmental services. And if you think about what kind of land does that best, then you get you know, the areas of Northeast Edmonton that are kind of special, have special value for uh, market gardens and seed potato production, and you get the kind of rolling grassland, um, which is you know, located primarily in the, to the southeast of the city. So that I guess that was, was a surprise that that it was uh, that the people were as knowledgeable as they were. Uh, I think that also surprised us. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess uh, people spend a lot more time thinking about their food and where it comes from uh, than they might have used to. Um, w- one last question um, f- for this podcast. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, signs of improvement uh, or or signs of encouragement when it comes to to the public policy uh, discussions and, and evolution of, of how we're approaching uh, agricultural land in the province. Uh, I'm wondering if you could just maybe touch on a couple examples uh, that you're encouraged by or, or that, that come front to mind. Yeah. So we're right, right now it seems that uh, that, that capital region, which, which really has had the worst sprawl problems in the past, right, starting from the 1980s uh, up until at least uh, 20, 2013 or so certainly had the worst problems, and maybe that's why we see this capital region now also showing the most signs of actually moving forward with conserving land, uh, getting that into the agenda, and and doing things in some type of coordinated way. So that's promising. Uh, I see municipalities that I've talked to who are you know, really, really concerned about losing agricultural land. So Wheatland County to the east of Calgary is one of those. We also see communities where um, they're, they're still at loggerheads. Uh, so all, all of those things exist. I think hopefully the requirement for joint planning, even if, it, if people are not s- start into those processes with uh, less, you know, t- with more intransient, transient, intransient views, um, uh, you know, perhaps just the need to uh, for joint planning, you know, uh, um, sparks some um, some some change of position. Well, thank you so much, Brent, for joining us today, and thank you everyone for listening in. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to our podcast, and you can also find us on SoundCloud. And if you can, make sure to give us a rating; it helps us out quite a bit. 
And if you're not already, make sure you can make sure that you follow us on social media. It's at AB Land Institute on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also find us on Alberta Land Institute over at Facebook. Thank you so much for listening in, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.